Welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I am your host, Hillary Jones. And so not a lot of change here since we last spoke. Uh, We have hit, I believe, week six of quarantine. And I think, you know, at my house, we've really hit a groove. Uh, And by groove, I mean basically that every day feels exactly the same. It's like Groundhog's Day. Uh, And I feel very lucky that we've been able to, um, you know, sort of be working a little bit, um, you know, but it is it is kind of wild. Just it really does feel like everything is just the exact same pretty much every day. Musically, not a huge amount of updates for me, though I did pick up my main pedal board from our drummer's house yesterday, and I am very psyched to do some work on that. I generally tend to leave it there, and then the only time I get to use it is during band practice, which is not ideal. Uh, So I do anticipate making some changes to that, and I played for a little while on it yesterday, which was great. I am also that guy, and I run usually like 12 to 13 pedals on the board. It's casual. Don't worry about it. Uh, I started that out of necessity in my last band. Um, We were like a three-piece, and I was the only stringed instrument in the band. And so I used pedals to really just like help me take up as much space as possible. So there were lots of, you know, lots of tricks and tools to do that. Um, Before that, really, I, I think I'd only ever run maybe like four pedals at a time tops, so it was it was really a slow development, but uh, ten years later, here we are. My my current band has a bass player and slightly different. You know, the band itself has slightly different sound needs, which you know my pedal board has not entirely adapted to yet, and I'm getting there, trying to figure it out step by step. So we'll see. Uh, so speaking of my previous band, today's guest was my bandmate for eight years in Whore Paint. Reba Mitchell. She is fabulous. She's a singer by trade, but is also a guitarist and just started a band where she's the drummer called Lashes. She did not call it that in uh, the interview, but that's what it's called. Um, She is uh, also a solo artist. So she has a loop-based ethereal experimental solo project, I'm calling it that, that's not her words, uh, called House Red. She's been a member of the Assembly of Light Choir, and they're most known for their um, work with the body. She's a former resident of the Dirt Palace Feminist Art Collective. She's an MC. She's an audiobook narrator. Uh, And as of a few months ago, she's officially a licensed cosmetologist. She is a founding board member uh, and vocal instructor at Girls Rock Rhode Island, now Riot Rhode Island, and she is honestly one of the smartest, funniest people I know. Uh, if you want to check out any mentions from our interview, make sure to check out the show notes where you can grab Reba's social media info and links to subscribe, rate, and review the show, which helps others find out about it. And if you stick around after the interview, as always, I will share a uh, piece of conversation, a uh, piece of the conversation that we we had in the interview, and I'll kind of expand on that. Today, I'm going to dig into the ways that racism uh, creeps into our organizations, uh, and if that freaks you out or feels weird to hear said out loud, I totally get it. I'll talk about that too, um, but it's also probably a signal that it's extra important to talk about. So we'll, we'll dig into that. All right, so let's get into my interview with Reba Mitchell. Mm-hmm. 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 
Reba, welcome to Midriff. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Great. <laughs> <laughs> How are you feeling? How's your morning? It's so good. Now I, I have mornings in my life and it's like a whole other part of the day that I never knew existed before. Mornings, who knew? Yeah, it's like secret extra time. You can do it's, whatever it's you want. It's the best part of waking up. Honestly, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for folks who might not know you, can you introduce yourself, maybe your name, your pronouns, a little bit about yourself and your background with music? Yes. My name is Reba Mitchell, she, her, and I am mostly a singer. Um, I grew up doing kind of classical and choral stuff, but I started playing in bands when I was 14 playing guitar and singing, but mostly singing. And I do uh, loop-based vocal music also. What is loop-based vocal music? It's when you... (laughs) Uh, I record short phrases, so it's sort of deconstructed and no no instrumental at all, layering vocal parts in a way that to me, it's like, it's a nice musical exercise as a vocalist, because there's generally this idea that a vocalist might wait for music quote unquote to be written and then sort of embellish on top of it i think it's a, it's a nice way for me to kind of push myself to see what i can come up with when there's nothing else and no one else to work off of mm. yeah that's that's really smart <laughs> <laughs> hey you're smart thank you <laughs> i think for people listening to it it's like i feel like every time i see you perform people leave and they're just like like they've had been in some sort of like Zen state for the past, like, you know, whatever amount of time. Uh, cool. Thank yeah. you for that. That's what yeah. it is for me, for sure. That's definitely an element. I'm yeah. glad it's a mutual experience then. Good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, audience, for joining me. <laughs> Just stopping time for a while. That's right. So so for the audience, so we were in a project together for a long time. Uh, mm. That was really great. And I'm just putting that out there up front in case people don't know. So so I don't know Conflict if that would be weird. I know. <laughs> we Get out of here. You're hard. <laughs> Spoiler. We both like music and we like it together. <laughs> See, look at that. Uh, but uh, I have heard that you are, I've heard on the street that you oh. are uh, potentially involved in a new project. Can you share details? The street is how I want people to hear it, Uh, (laughs) but I will reveal it on this podcast also. Um, Yes. So I uh, am in a new project. Does it have a name? I'm not sure. It might be called... Can we make one up right now? I I think we're calling it Dithco. Dithco? Can you spell that? (laughs) D-I-T-H-K. K-O, but like it's in middle font specifically. That's important. Yeah, yeah. you want it to look pretty dark. Um, and uh, I'm playing drums in that band, which is exciting. I definitely have not started a new band on purpose in 11 years since we started our band. That was the last time I was like, I think I need a band. Yeah, because I because I, I, you only need one at a time for me. And we played f- forever, and I always had 18 accidental side projects, which is more than enough. Yeah, it had been so long, and our band was so fun, I thought it had ruined me for every other band. But now this band, it's so fun. It's fr- We're friends. Uh, we're just, like, screaming and cackling the entire time we play music. 
We text each other all day. I just turned my phone off because I was getting like 400 texts from <laughs> that band. Like, I can't wait to practice tonight. I love um, music. Do you let's love work music? on that sick jam. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is hilarious and fun. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's cool. And I've been... For a while now, it's just been mostly solo stuff for me. And so it's really nice to have just like a band dynamic is so different and it brings out different things in you as a musician. Yeah, it's really fun. I, I want to get into some gear stuff specifically in a little bit, but I feel like we're kind of on the, the, the precipice of this other conversation because I want to talk about the differences in your relationship to different instruments yeah. and and gender and identity and power and all of that yeah I mean my first thought is that being a singer is revealing in terms of who you encounter and who is fully drinking the patriarchal kool-aid and who's not (laughs) I've heard it's going around it's going around I mean there's an idea that singers especially if they're women are sort of ornamental right that you're doing that because you don't play an instrument or aren't as adept musically or something like there's an idea that it's innate and extra you know um uh, which I also think is interesting because that's generally speaking not how singers in bands who are cis men are viewed you know like a cis man is a band leader if he's a singer saving the day he's saving the day he's likely the genius behind the music or whatever and it's funny as a woman um you just you encounter this attitude that you don't know what else is happening musically and are not interested in it and that you don't carry things and you get that maybe not less but you certainly get a different flavor of it if you're an instrumentalist and especially a huge gearhead it's a signifier it's a signifier and it gives it gives the audience or the, whoever's talking to you something to latch on to in terms of being like oh you do know about that specific thing yeah right and the power dynamic of inherent in that presumed knowledge definitely yeah definitely yeah well and it was it's funny like i feel like yeah definitely in our band at least like you know way more about music than i do by leaps and bounds <laughs> like mountain mountainous leaps and bounds and so you know being in a band with you for that long and like having kind of like witnessed those experiences with like sound people and different things like it's it's wild i'm like i'm just gonna roll up here with this pedal board and therefore everyone's gonna be like well uh but like if you don't have that or you you know you didn't have pedals for a long time i think that was this weird dynamic where you're like okay i've got these pedals let's talk. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, definitely. And for me as a singer, and this is, it's always on my mind when I teach, I feel like singers need the tools of music theory to be able to talk about what they're doing. Like to me, theory is not about rules at all, but it is, um, it's a language. So I shouldn't have to sing to you what I'm talking about. You know, I shouldn't have to say like, oh, that part where I go, ba ba. you know, you need to know what the interval is or what the timing is. You know, you should be able to write it in email or at least to be able to jot it down or use the same language. Um, I think that's especially true since you don't have a physical instrument that's outside of your body to show someone else. Like if you're showing me something on guitar, I can watch your hands do it. And that's less the case with vocals. Yeah, I think a singer needs it. A singer deserves to have it. But that actually, it does serve that gear function to me, where if you're 
a singer and you're walking into a room of instrumentalists, having that musical knowledge is important as a language, but it is also, it's like a little bit of an armor. You know, it's a little bit of a signifier that you know what you're talking about. Mm, so like theory is the gear of vocalists? I believe that's true. Yes. Mm. Ooh. Wow. We just got right there. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tool. It's definitely a tool. Yeah, I think that's true. How then, uh, how does that relate then to your experience as like playing, like being in a band playing guitar or now playing drums? I've definitely, it's funny because drums are much newer to me. They feel the most like singing of anything else I've ever done in like a visceral kind of really embodied way. Um, and that feels really important to me. And I love the people I am playing music with. So that dynamic is good. There's no weird vibes there. But I've played guitar way more out at shows. And it's been a long time. But there was a long time when that was sort of seriously my instrument. And I will say, I don't think it was actually better. I mean, occasionally it would give me something to kind of bro down about conversationally. But it opened the door for a lot more weird opportunities when you're encountering people who clearly already have ideas about what a cis woman is even doing there. And when I was playing guitar, I was very young. We were like, my band had fake IDs and we were playing in bars <laughs> and we were like two people in the band were old enough to drive. And that's how we got to the shows. But people will believe anything they want to about a 15 year old girl. You know what I'm saying? Like they will right. believe you're 21 if that's what they want to do. And they did. And uh, in those environments, I got way more kind of like hedgy. Well, what did how did you learn that? You know, there was always the sort of vibe of like, so did your boyfriend teach you? Mm -hmm. And that I think was almost grosser. It was just everything about it was gross. I I recently I had blocked this out of my memory, but for a long time, I remember my first band that I was in when I was like 16, uh, my my boyfriend at the time played drums. And I remember having very distant conversations with him about like, we can't hold hands at a show. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We can't like I can't like give you a kiss. I can't like there's no affection. Definitely. Uh, and he was like really hurt by that and I'm didn't sure understand it at all. And and I, I had totally blocked that out of my memory. Mm -hmm. um, but like, yeah, like because like you have to, especially as like a 16 year old, like oh, yeah. this girl, you're like, I <laughs> whatever I can do to like verify my, you know, uh, <laughs> the fact that I should be here is important. And that fact should not be that I am dating you. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm I uh can we pop into some gear stuff? Is that Let's cool? Do. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. So what was your first experience with gear? So you talked about being 16. What was what were you playing? Yeah. Oh, I was playing um when I first first started playing, I had a a little epiphone that I got that was cheap, a little candy apple red epiphone. Um, but I soon switched to um, this Dan Electro reissue when they first came out and I loved it. And I saved up my little money working at the movie theater in the mall in Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> and it was so beautiful and it felt good in my hands. Um, and I, it was, it did not cost very much money as far as guitars go, but I was just like, I was so proud of it. 
Um, They're so cool. They're cool. They're cool. And it felt like, and at the time, I had a more resistant attitude towards like aesthetics of femininity and hyper femininity. I was very like, I'll never wear makeup. Look at me now, America. (laughs) Um, You can't. It's a podcast, but I do. uh, I have changed my tune. Um, (laughs) Get it. it Get it. Um, But this guitar, which I still have, was uh, like the dreamsicle kind of burst, you know, like cream to pink on the outside. And somehow I just felt like very seen by that guitar. And this was also the mid late 90s. So we were all listening to just like so much Sonic Youth and pavement and that dog and um oh i love that dog so much oh that dog mm. so i i started amassing pedals at that time too not for vocals yet i was using it all for guitar at the time but it was very uh you know i had like a crybaby through a big oh, yeah mouth. oh yeah and i lost all those pedals in a band breakup um my cool friend claire who was like a musical savant and she played bass but she also i forgot about this played she would like metal covers on a banjo uh in oklahoma but she we were playing music together in a band called the milkmaids and then i moved away to you go were to in a band called the milkmaids briefly yeah briefly how did i never know this i i forgot about it it's we amazing <laughs> i'm not sure if she and i ever even played a show but we okay. started together and um she was a real badass but then i came home for christmas and i was like oh dude i think i left like my backpack full of all my pedals including one of those 90s big muffs which at the time I was oh like, my god whatever I didn't know it would be special but she was like mm, I don't think they're here I haven't seen them and I was like bud you've got all my pedals <laughs> whatever they're lost I did use um do you remember those big muff boxes like they would come oh yeah the wooden big muff boxes right yeah yeah that was my jewelry box for years and that <laughs> I hung on to for longer than I managed to keep that big muff in my life R.I.P. The Muff. God, I hope she's still using that thing. She better be. As long as those things are, I I know because I have a couple because I was like during the '90s collecting them for a while. They're like kind of expensive now. The the green ones, yeah. Oh yeah, it's wild. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. Pour one out for the Big Muff. Fresh in my mind. (laughs) (laughs) So what? What now? What's your setup now? What's happening? So for vocals, when I'm doing solo stuff, it's always changing because I'm always chasing the perfect looper, but I really think I figured it out. We'll see. But I, uh, my, my setup is that I sing through a POG 2, which I in some ways use like mostly as a mixer, but use the octave functions for some sort of textural stuff for transitions. Um, I mean, it seems like that allows you to almost, it almost like makes the vocal into like a little bit like an organ at times. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, depending on where you go, those higher octaves on it give it a weird organy, like metallic kind of tone. And the lower octaves, depending on how much of a dry vocal you mix in with it, it just becomes like quite washy, which is nice as a singer because you can get sounds that don't sound like vocals at all. So it Mm -hmm. kind of will open up some other possibilities, which is cool. And that somehow falls within my standards of like I'm committed in that project to not using anything besides vocals. Occasionally I'll sort of have this feeling like, oh, should I involve a drum machine too? Mm. And then I immediately fly into this like self-hating prison where I'm like, oh, have you run out of vocal ideas? Are you a singer and you can't come up with anything else to make this Ooh. interesting? Like that's all your ideas. So I shut it down. But that's what that project is. It's a musical exercise. Anyway, so the pod goes into a uh, Hall of Fame 
reverb, which is so good to me. It's like the perfect kind of pedal because it has enough options but does one very clear thing. And it sounds good on vocals and some reverbs get a little tinny and weird, but I think it sounds really nice. Then I go through America's greatest pedal, Boss Gigadelay DD20. <laughs> it's if I was on a desert island with $120. That's a good question. I should start asking this. What's your desert island? The desert island pedal. pedal. Me, yeah. It's a DD20. It's just a workhorse. Boss pedals, are they special? No. Are they excellent? Yes. They are indestructible. I just love that pedal. You can get a good extreme variety of delays out of it, and you can use it as a looper. Um, and it's, I just feel like it's simple and super functional. I just love that pedal. Do you do you tend to stick with one setting, like one reverb or something, or delay? I uh, don't. Or you mix it up a little bit? Yeah. I mix it up, yeah. Um, yeah, just depending on what I want, especially reverb-wise. If I, yeah, it depends on what I want. If I, if I want it to get really textural and sort of lost, I'll kick it way up. Definitely if I'm singing in bands, I'll take it back in so that it, the vocals cut through a little bit and don't just get so washy that they're lost. But it definitely depends on if I'm going for kind of a textural thing or just like a nice sounding, but kind of more traditional vocal. Here's another thing that we were going to get into. I, I, I wanted, we, we had talked about a little bit last time that you you mentioned in our previous conversation. What... What if what even is gear? What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know, Hillary. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think it's interesting. We have like our our sort of typical, you know, we know, is it your guitar? Is it your pedals or whatever? And then I feel like there's all this other accoutrement that can go into making music. Like we were recently, I was, I was thinking about Maria Chavez, the turntablist, and we were chatting about her recently. That's a less, like broken LPs are a less typical conception of gear, but that's definitely her gear. And then you get into other more performative acts or musicians. And I just, I feel like Lingua Ignata is another one that came up and she is so connected to fashion, which mm. I think I, I love like the different things that she brings into her work because her work is so expressly about like womanness, uh, if not femininity and abuse. And she's so connected to high fashion that to me, I feel like it makes it brings into that project more explicit. Um, I don't even want to say femininity because it's not that, but but there's no disregarding who she is and her identity. And so to me, is does that make what you're wearing gear? Maybe. I think so. Mm. Um, and definitely as a singer, like your body, you know, if you your body is your gear, if it craps out on you, you can't perform. Like if you fuck up your voice, which I did. That's it. Like, it's gone. Your voice box is your gear. If you fuck it up, it's over for you. As far as, like, gear as... Well, so if you're identifying or defining gear as a tool to help you with your expression, mm. is that... Mm -hmm. Right? I like that. Ooh, yeah. Then, well <laughs> then, Then, yeah. Then your, your clothing is part of that expression if, the, if you're, you know, engaged in a performance or something like that. Or you could even argue... If you're just recording, if that if what you're wearing is contributing to how you're performing, then that's it doesn't even matter if it's a visual for others or for yourself. Yeah, I agree completely. I agree completely because it affects your performance and people aren't visually seeing your gear when you're recording anyway. Right. But it still is part of your experience. Is is your therapist your gear? Uh, probably, huh? <laughs> 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 Got to take a trip to the shop. <laughs> Let me re up on that. 
<laughs> I need a trust rod adjustment in my soul. In my soul. Right here. <laughs> <laughs> this seems related. So you've been doing a lot of other work recently that is like, I feel like related to this conversation, yeah. uh, you've just finished school. You want to tell the listeners about that experience? Yes. I went to school for the second time. I got, <laughs> I feel like this is good because it's the first this is the first time I've been able to say for real that I have degrees in gender studies and cosmetology. I had a crisis and went to hair school. Mostly, I work from home, recording audiobooks. That's what I've been doing. And it was making me feel bananas to be in this ISO booth for the last eight years, not talking to anyone. So <laughs> it's a long story, but I went to beauty school and I became a licensed hairdresser. And it is wonderful and fascinating and strangely intimate. Yeah. There's a lot. There's like a whole, uh, the intimacy part reminded me that there's actually a whole campaign around uh, hairdressers talking to their clients about uh, interpersonal and domestic violence. We had a training when I was Did in you have a training? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Anyway. Which I was shocked and delighted by because I will say this, beauty school is a feminist utopia as it relates to the student body there. Um, but institutionally, it's very traditional in ways that are incredibly problematic. And I was really shocked and delighted that they were doing that because people reveal things to their hairdressers immediately. And I, it started happening to me as soon as I started cutting hair. I was not good yet. I was still in school. I hadn't done anything. I had no rapport with these people. There is some weird cosmic thing as soon as someone sits down. I really, I and I have ideas about where that comes from, but it does, it happens immediately. I mean, I think part of what's also interesting to me about the intimacy of it is that you're holding people's physical identity in your hands. And especially as that relates to gender, I just think it, it feels like a lot of responsibility to me that needs to be taken really seriously. Right. And thinking about like, yeah, people's identities, people's, you know, they're living their their lives every day with this like experience of themselves and, you know, what you're helping contribute to that in some way. Yeah. And it can be devastating or it can be really affirming, both in terms of the experience you have, because of course, I think like traditional salons and barbershops are so split and are so gendered in a really binary way that just does not work for many people. And I think maybe even most people, if there was better options. So the experience is one thing. And then what you're left with in terms of your physical identity, if you feel like it's not lining up with you just aesthetically, but I think especially if your appearance is not lining up with your gender identity, that's a problem. And you need to be able to talk to your stylist about it. <laughs> it's important to me, if you're mm -hmm. a hairstylist, you need to ask everyone what their pronouns are like that. It's, you know, you need to be able to ask, okay, like what would be too short? What would be like too mask for you? Mm -hmm. You know, that's all part of allowing people to feel like themselves. Mm -hmm. Scooting back into gear a little bit again, I am curious uh, about some of your personal experiences related to like gender and identity and like gear purchases, I guess, uh, yeah. predominantly or like, you know, that that type of experience or interaction? Yeah, it has been mixed. I feel like lately it's been generally good, but I also realize how small I've made that world for myself. Like the experiences are so potentially distressing 
that I go to the places that I know aren't weird. Around here, there's Empire Guitars, and they're always lovely. It is a great shop where they don't talk to you like you're stupid. And I feel like for me, that's a big part of it, especially as a fruitcake-y woman walking in. Um, there's just often this pushback like you're stupid, especially singing through pedals. I cannot tell you how often people have been like, have you ever tried that before? Oh, my God. I don't know. It's not really going to work. Like, I've been trying it for 20 years. Like, it's what I do. It, yeah, the consistency with which I'm asked, have you ever tried that? Like, oh, is this a new little experiment? I don't think it's going to work. That's not what it's made for, which does not make any sense. That experience, I'm just not interested in. I find myself buying way more gear online. I feel lucky here, both here geographically and kind of just like in the community I occupy in a larger way. There are plenty of other people to talk to about gear besides like a more traditional bro in a guitar center environment. Like I can ask women and queer people who play music what they think about their pedals and not ever have to enter in to this very typically male world because it's sort of not worth it to me. It's exhausting. It's often humiliating. You don't get the answers you need. I just, I got to a place in my life where I was like, I'm not gonna wade through masculinity to get where I'm going in any way. It's like you have to take all the stuff out of your garage to clean it and then just put back in what you want. I took out the men and I'm putting them back in one at a time. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if we're talking about cis heterosexual men, I'm t I took them out. And <laughs> when I have people in my you, world, I'm you like, clean them off and made oh, sure that they were functioning, took them to, took them yep. to get repaired. They still work. But the, the experiences have so consistently in the world, talking about gear or anything else, have so consistently been so problematic that just functioning was a problem. Like just asking the questions about the gear. If you're in one of these environments where some man working in a shop just cannot believe you know what you're talking about, it doesn't work. I've gotten there with a lot of things. I, also, I didn't take male professors in college with only a couple of exceptions. For that reason, it was just so weird every time. And I've heard this from so many other women that we all had a similar experience where we were getting straight A's from doting male professors who were just sort of like, this work is brilliant. We were like, that work is awful and idiotic. Like, is that where your standards lie somehow? It just, it was hard to have a meaningful experience because your expertise and potential expertise just couldn't be acknowledged. There were exceptions to that for me, but very few. So for me, I just, I got to a place where I need to be able to live my life. I need to be able to function. I go with a more sure thing, generally speaking. Can you talk about how that all plays into uh, your work with Girls Rock Rhode Island, now Riot Rhode Island? Yes. I've gotten so spoiled. I feel like with Riot, the organization formerly known as Girls Rock. Can it have a symbol? I think it must. I think it must. We'll reveal it soon. <laughs> There's so much to take away from that environment. I feel like the prongs of why that kind of work is important and the ways in which it's meaningful and kind of transformative are plentiful. But one of the sort of day-to-day -day takeaways for me is that you can just learn so much in an environment that isn't tainted by hierarchy and assumptions. Like for me, I feel so spoiled now because I almost cannot remember 
a time when I felt like I had to wade through that masculinity to get the information I needed. There are so many people in such a robust community surrounding riot of women and queer people who know about all different things. And also in this town, there's the Dirt Palace. There's um, there's just a broad scene of all kinds of people with all kinds of musical expertise. And it's just like, it's just nice to be able to feel normal and to not have to constantly be doing that thing where it's like, okay, I can't, I can't visibly be in this relationship. I can't exhibit any of these behaviors or parts of myself that might, that might align with someone's ideas of femininity that wrap in with their assumption that idiocy is connected to that, you know? Mm -hmm. What do you think about people who come in and, you know, ask things like, why is there no boys rock camp? There's two answers. The world is a boys rock camp. So there's that. It exists. Secondly, and more specifically, what goes on at girls rock camps across the U.S. and the world is a very specific thing. And there should be that boys rock camp. There should be more places where men have the opportunity to talk about identity and masculinity and the various intersections with that and what it means and what about that is healthy for them and what doesn't work and what assumptions were they brought up with and how is that playing into their lives. There should be. I can't believe no one has started I one. I can't considering, believe considering it. Considering how often that question comes it up. It comes up so often. And so it, it, I, it really blows my mind. You know, it's like people, I think, I'm not sure people just don't understand what happens at Girls Rock Camp. Or mm -hmm. and I think that's part of it is that they think that it's just like, you know, being exclusive for exclusivity's sake. But it's not like, you know, it's like Boys Rock Camp is not everybody getting together to learn ACDC songs. Like, oh, but that could be cool. I mean, <laughs> you know. I love ACDC. But I, I, I mean, I think there's two healthy attitudes um, about why one would attend Riot or what used to be called Girls Rock Camp or Girls Rock Camp elsewhere. Part of it is children especially are in an environment that involves really gendered expectations and to be able to be around people who look like you to be able to remove one type of hierarchy. And of course, there are many others, but to remove that, it can be freeing in a way. Like we've heard participants in those programs report like, oh, I feel more at liberty to be silly. I feel more at liberty to make mistakes here. So part of the benefit is that you can come into this environment, learn a new side of yourself, maybe sort of like untangle some even internalized misogyny that some of us have. And then you have a strength that you discovered in yourself where you can go back into the world and collaborate in gender diverse environments. Okay, that's one healthy attitude. That's one benefit that can come from being involved in a camp like that. Another attitude is you are tired of operating in a misogynistic gender binary world and you want to come in to an environment like this, you want to build your real life looking like this with women and queer people to secede more fully from a hypermasculine culture. To me, that is equally valid. Yeah, it, <laughs> it's it's it depends on I think it depends on a lot of things. Right. So people do the mm. people participate in camps like this for so many different reasons. And I think that you could even have both of those reasons coexisting, right? Absolutely. And yeah, I think the validity, as you're saying, is totally, totally right on. It's a lot. It's a lot to exist in the world. <laughs> it is. Yeah. 
It is. And I feel like oftentimes organizations feel pressure to play it both ways and be like, no, no, the goal is that then we go out and collaborate more. And um, I just feel like it doesn't, I feel like that is a good thing, but I also feel like it doesn't have to be the thing. Um, it doesn't have to be the only answer. You can you can build your real life with whomever and in whatever way feels healthy to you. It's valid. That's valid. And it doesn't make it less real life. I don't think it's escapist. Women are real and queer people are real. We don't. If the system is not working for us, we can build another system in many ways. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, acknowledging that the things that Girls Rock you know, locally at our camp and then across the board, you know, we're not doing everything right all the time. And we've made a lot of mistakes in the growth of the organization as well. Mm -hmm. But, but I think that one of the things that's important, there is the attention to, to trying to make, (laughs) trying to fix it, (laughs) Uh, you know, but that's, yeah, working on that as much as possible and working on that process because, and it's that it is never going to end. It's that there's always going to be a process of, you know, attending to all of the like white supremacy and everything that, you know, is a part of, of any organization that has a number of white people involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Myself Absolutely. included uh, as someone who is part of, you know, starting the organization. Yeah. Um, same. And that's very much the work that's at the forefront of the organization now, I think. And I think, um, just on a larger scale, I hope that that, and I think that that, um, awareness is more at the forefront of all of our minds, especially when you're a person whose identity is tied up with part of the, the negative experiences you've had, the systemic oppression that you're on the receiving end of, it, uh, has taken, too much time for many people to sort of see themselves on the other side of that. You're someone else's man is how it always occurs to me. Like (laughs) it's hard when you have experienced such, um, yeah, when you've had so many negative experiences on an individual level and on a systemic level to acknowledge that you have really fully participated in being that for someone else and having gone through life, being enabled to be unaware of it. Yeah. So in Girls Rocks, that's shaken out in very specific ways. I'm glad it's being addressed more all the time. I think for all of us now in our individual lives moving through the world, that's the work, seeing ourselves on both sides of any any system of oppression. So Riot is currently involved in this project called Changing Our Tune that's working on decreasing gender-based violence in music venues and in the scene more generally in Providence. If you were to speak to venue owners, to folks running a music gear store, to anyone who is in some sort of power in the music industry, and they really truly seem to want to make some sort of change, what would you tell them? I have a complicated relationship to it because I don't know. It feels hard for me to imagine going into a space that's problematic. I mean, I think for many people, a quick, uh, what feels like it could be a quick tool would be to get more diversity among your staff, but often then you're just putting your staff in a more uncomfortable position. You're putting the burden on people who are unequipped uh, for the sake of optics. I think that the solutions are pretty nuanced because what feels like an allegation that would be taken seriously is one that's very cut and dry, one that's very physical 
so we see a lot of gender-based violence sort of framed in that way, but gender-based intimidation that's sort of based on violence feels to me so widespread and has such real effects on how we move in the world and what spaces we are comfortable in. That feels like as much of an issue to be addressed to me. Yeah, it's like gender-based violence exists along a continuum, right? And we have at one end of the continuum is the what you're describing kind of is like, I'm using air quotes, like lower level offenses or mm-hmm. intimidation or whatever that exists. And that kind of creates this environment where, quote unquote, more harmful behavior can flourish, right? Is that yeah. what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. And even if the more express physical violence isn't flourishing. I feel like so many people have experienced that, that when we are around intimidating environments and what are usually called microaggressions, but I think many people can agree are, there's there's nothing that micro about them. They're just aggressions. Right. It can be so, it can be such a constant reminder of that violence that the line becomes very blurry. Like those, those quote unquote smaller offenses to me are just as problematic. Those are the things that sort of define who is this space for? And even if nothing, quote unquote, happens, will you come back to that space or will you be vibed out and intimidated out of participating in a music culture, music scene or whatever it is? If it's not music, your field of interest in many ways, because it crosses every kind of environment and every kind of interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is <laughs> this is a bit of a jump. But what about those those behaviors in, for example, a space like Craigslist. Craigslist is so wild. I can't believe we haven't talked about Craigslist uh, because that is where gear comes from, realistically. Uh, <laughs> the gear fairy Craigslist. It's the gear fairy. It really is. Um, I had this experience with this new band I'm playing with recently. Since we were all texting every day, somebody texted me um, a Craigslist link to this electronic drum kit. And I was like, I will buy that without thinking twice about it. And one of the guys in this band was like, I'll go with you. Let's go look at it, which was helpful and which totally worked because we have a great dynamic. There was nothing, you know, it wasn't one of these, oh, there, there, you need help. I really do need help. He's like, oh, let's go check it out. I sent an email and then I was joking back to my band. I was like, okay, we'll see how quickly this drum guy responds to Robert, LOL. And then I realized they thought I was joking that I had signed my name Robert, which I didn't. I just I signed it with an art. But I would never, based on my experiences, I would never for a music Craigslist purchase, I would never sign Reba or Rebecca. Because once I do, the tone so often changes so much to being no longer about information. I just feel like if I need gear talk information, I need to get it before I reveal that I'm a woman. Because all bets are off after that. I never know how it's going to go. You have to change your name like uh, George Sand or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I'll come up with something jazzy and cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I try to get as much information as I can before I go to physically look at something and pick it up. Because I also know, especially looking like a fruitcake, often then the tone changes to this sort of very topical dancing around the subject. I can't believe you know what you're talking about. Is this for your boyfriend or whatever kind of conversation? And sometimes that doesn't happen. And then I feel like a douche uh, for thinking (laughs) it will. But the fact of the matter is that those experiences have been so consistent in my life that that's where my brain goes immediately every time. Immediately every time. It's hard to, you want to have 
you want to believe in the good in the world, but you know, you've had enough bad that sometimes it makes it hard. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes back to, I has sort of been like things have been occurring to me as we talk from your first questions about my first experience with gear. I totally forgot when I was playing guitar really seriously when it was my whole life and I was in jazz band in high school, you know, the guitarist, it was sort of like a tiered room, the band room. And the guitarists were up in one of the back corners, like very stoner corner. You know what I'm saying? But I was the only girl playing guitar surrounded by these guys who were having these constant, like really purposefully sexually intimidating conversations mm. um, and like throwing condoms on my music stand and stuff. Oh, like dang. as a joke. And they would like, I got like fake asked out to prom because my boyfriend also played guitar and they hated him and thought he was a tool. And they were like fucking with him by fake asking me out to prom. Whoa. It was kind of like, that's what playing guitar was in Oklahoma in the 90s. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> that's why and... Robert is inquiring about that pedal on Craigslist. <laughs> oh wow well robert who else do you think i should interview i would like to hear from a few people i want to hear what maria chavez has to say i think she's so brilliant i have had the pleasure of seeing her play and she's so she has what to me was such a girl's rocky vibe about explaining and demystifying Mm. her gear and the way she makes music which to me is such a, a gendered thing. I just love her, and I think she's fascinating. And I want to hear her talk. I want to know what Heba Kadri has to say, who is a mastering engineer out of Brooklyn. Um, she's from Egypt originally, and she has mastered just so much brilliant stuff, which that's a gear world I don't know about. Um, it's like gear level 2.0. I just, oh yeah, my God. I feel like just, I just want to know. Please talk to Heba. <laughs> Fiona Campbell is super awesome and interesting to me, who was a drummer and a tour manager. I met her mostly as a tour manager. So she has been all over the world. She's Australian originally, I believe, but sort of lives everywhere and nowhere. I would like to know what she has to say about going into music stores everywhere in the world, which I assume to me that's if you're a TM, that is what you've done. Mm. And I also would like to know what Kristen Hader has to say. I want to know what lingua ignota has to say as someone who makes such incredibly gendered music in the world of metal and also being such a brilliant capable instrumentalist um but i think someone who's largely perceived as a singer Mm -hmm. i would like to know what she has to say me too (laughs) yes i know oh man and then we can talk about whether clothing is gear i want to know yeah what she has to say i want the answers she knows what clothing is more than anyone I've ever talked to. She could answer the question. Cool. So I have but one last question for you. Go on. How can listeners stay in contact with you? I, the social media I exist on is Instagram mostly, which is Reba Loves Jesus for music and personal stuff and hair stuff and trans hype and gender propaganda is over on my hair Instagram, which is I trusted Reba with scissors. Um, do people call things hairstagram? Is that a thing? You know what? They probably do. They probably do. There must be a hashtag for that, right? There must be. I'm going to dive into that later. <laughs> uh, awesome. Uh, and I think we're all on the edge of our seat to hear your new project. Thank you. Me too. Can't wait. We'll see what happens. We'll Can't write a song. Wait. <laughs> 
Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for talking today and always. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Indeed. All right. We'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Love it. Bye. Thanks so much to Reba for such a great conversation. I am guessing this will be the first of our interviews on this show. I am pretty certain that's the case. Uh, as you can see now, uh, I think pretty much anyone who knows Reba can verify that to know Reba is to love Reba. And all of Providence knows and loves Reba. Once again, uh, so if you want refreshers on uh, any of Reba's mentions, her social media, if you want it, you can check out the show notes where you can also find links to Midriff on social media and the web, the my email list, and a whole bunch more stuff. So as promised, I want to take a minute to pop into a conversation about racism and white supremacy. So you may be thinking, hey, Hillary, I came here to talk about gender. What's the deal? Well, the deal is that sexism, racism, heterosexism, heterosexism, all the isms are all wrapped up together, and you can't really talk about one without talking about the others. Uh, so racism and white supremacy are topics that will require us several lifetimes to address, maybe forever. Let's, let's, let's just say it. But, um, you know, really, it's our responsibility, especially for those of us who are white folks, to try to do so. So consider this a very first piece of this conversation. Um, all right. So the work that I do, what folks in the biz call diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and, you know, a lot of the language that I talk about is around gender, and that is because I, um, you know, uh, let's be real, I am an educated cisgender white lady talking about these things. And, you know, I've got gender covered, right? Like, I feel very comfortable talking about that. And other people, I think, then view me, you know, as somebody who can talk about that. But um, my understanding of racism and trans issues are through a very privileged lens. That's just what it is. Um, so it will probably not be a surprise to hear that I have made a lot of mistakes in doing this work, both personally and organizationally as well. Um, I'm originally from a super white, homogenous city in the upper Midwest, uh, or at least, you know, it was super homogenous at the time. I think that's changing a bit. But, you know, there are probably, I don't know, like 30 kids of color in my 1,000-person uh, public high school. As a white person, I received a lot of the same messages that many of you who are white probably did. Uh, so like diversity is good, we're all colorblind, messages of tolerance, racism is bad, and the like, right? Um, and these were very common messages around racism in the 90s, many of which continue today. So let's just put a pin in that and we'll come back to it. So personally, moving ahead, I went to college for psychology. Um, I had a focus on... Uh, gender studies and, you know, it's social psychology, so not clinical psychology, but research social psychology, which is about the ways that people are impacted by their group membership and by group membership generally. So racism, sexism, um, and by groups generally. So racism, sexism, social dominance, these were all big parts of the conversation. And then moving into grad school, I pretty much just continued that work with a concentration on gender and multiculturalism, as it was called at the, at the time. So... You know, I was also once again that guy, you know, I was the person who's like an academic with a whole lot of language and knowledge and around racism. I had all the words and everything. 
um, and I'd read all the stuff, but with very little practical application. And so as I finished grad school, I worked with a number of folks to start Girls Rock Rhode Island, um, now Riot Rhode Island, so I've mentioned that before. But as a white person, I was surrounded mostly, and, and for most white people this is the case, I was surrounded by other white people. Um, there's research that suggests this as well. And so um, even though you probably can see it in your own life. Um, so, you know, I was surrounded by mostly other white people who were then invited to start the organization and a small number of folks of color who became a part um, early on oftentimes had to leave due to other commitments. And as you may know, um, due to the intersections of race and uh, economics and wealth, folks of color often have to hustle more to make ends meet, um, which then means less time for volunteering. So, um, you know, perhaps also because they didn't feel comfortable working with a whole big crew of mostly white women. Um, so we had a large number of youth of color participating in our, our programming, um, but due to the aforementioned issues with volunteering um, and outreach mostly through white outlets, as also tends to happen, <laughs> we ended up with another very common dynamic, which is um, youth of color being taught by white folks who may not reflect their experiences. Um, and we talked about this ad nauseum for years, for years. Um, we put it in our strategic plan, we talked about it all the time, but we couldn't get out of our own way to do it. And um, lots of you know, talk, but basically no action. Um, because, you know, it was hard. And also because we were a tiny organization, we kept using this like lack of capacity uh, as an excuse to focus on fundraising or pretty much any other issue first. So let's put a pin in that as well. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even know I was a person who used that phrase, but apparently here we are. Uh, anyway, so you know, zero people of color will be surprised to hear that it took a real push from folks of color within the organization and a small number of white allies or accomplices to really like bring this to the forefront, right? Um, and during this process, which is ongoing and will be ongoing, um, you know, I was uh, and I was a part of, you know, which I was a part of at the time for probably about three years. Um, I personally learned, you know, a ton from the folks of color around me. And I really want to thank them for that, because that is some real emotional labor and um, education that I directly benefited from. Um, and, you know, we as an organization made mistakes. Um, and unsurprisingly, people were hurt during this process. Uh, and that is obviously, and of course, really, really sad. Um, and it's, it, you know, but, but that work is, it's just that. It's like, it's a process, right? There would be missteps for everyone trying to make change in their organizations. And that is how it works. But, uh, you know, these mistakes are wasted if we don't take them as an opportunity to learn, right? Um, you know, while I'm no longer in a staff role at Riot, um, I am super proud of that work and where the organization is at now as a result of that work. Like they are really killing it in so, so many ways. It's beautiful to see. Um, and, you know, personally, I see my new role now as uh, helping as a first step in these conversations with organizations, like working sort of as a scaffold, right, um, to bring people to that like next level. And I can be that you know, white person that people feel comfortable talking to um, and is, are maybe not as um, uh, defensive of, uh, you know, because I've also made these mistakes, right? 
um, with the idea that eventually, hopefully, folks can have some conversations with folks of color to um, to bring them to that next level. So, all right. Hopefully, you know, hearing those mistakes makes people feel better. They're able to then like admit that they're, you know, they had them. And so that, you know, they're there, they're on the table, and then we can all move forward. And that's really the goal, right? So you've listened this far, and maybe you've experienced some of these challenges at your workplace, and you're like, cool story. So now what? Uh, so let's get back to those pins. Um, okay, so the first one, the first pin was about uh, a lot of the teaching and language white folks learn around racism. So the first thing is diversity is good, right? Yes, this is true. Diversity is great. Um, but a lot of the times this ends up just being a real like platitude, like people say it, but they aren't really enacting it in any way, and they can't enact it if they're existing in an entirely homogenous space. Um, you know, obviously no space is entirely homogenous, but you know what I'm talking about, right? So it can make you feel good just to believe it and to say it out loud, but it doesn't really mean anything um, if everyone in the space is the same. And, you know, you have to think about how you can actually create a more diverse space. And this is a much bigger conversation that we can get into at another point. Um, but in the meantime, um, you know, we have to create inclusive and equitable, equitable cultures first. All right, the second one, we are all colorblind. So let's be real. This message, once again, sounds great. But no one is colorblind, right? Uh, we are all a part of a racist culture that teaches us that, um, that it's not true, that color does mean something, right? Um, and being colorblind, you know, when you think about it, isn't really virtuous in the first place as it flattens everyone's experiences, right? It isn't better to respect everyone, or I, I would say it, it is better to expect to respect everyone's differences, their backgrounds, their experiences, right? Instead of assuming that they're all exactly the same. Nobody wants to be treated exactly the same as everyone else because we are not all the same. Um, all right, number three, messages of tolerance. So connected to the above, right, the things I just mentioned, what does it mean to tolerate someone, right? This word, I don't understand how this ever became a thing. But um, so like if we told someone, if, if someone told me that they tolerated me, I wouldn't view that as a compliment. Like, is tolerating people really our goal? <laughs> I think we can aim a little bit higher, right? So let's think about, like, inclusion. Let's think about equity, belonging, right? Like, where, where do we really want to be? So the last one here, the fourth one, racism is bad. Duh. Yes, racism is bad. Uh, I think that that's why we're having this conversation, right? But framing com uh, racism as a strictly moral, like binary quandary isn't necessarily helpful either. Let's think about why people are racist, right? It's because they were socialized to be racist in a racist culture. Um, we're all socialized to be racist. Um, in fact, if you were, have ever taken a psychology class, you've probably learned that our brains are like, quote unquote, cognitive misers, right? Which means that they are wired so they have to, so they do as little work as possible, right? And stereotypes and heuristics that come along with racism mean that our brain doesn't um, have to work as hard, right? So our brain is wired for this, right? So the fact that we have at some point in our past done and presumably at some point in the future will do something racist isn't surprising. It's to be expected, right? And so if we connect racism to morality, it becomes very connected to shame. Um, 
And if we have this view of ourselves as good people, which I think a lot of people do, um, it leads white people to become hyper defensive at the thought that they might have done something racist. And I've, you know, we've all had this at different points if you were a white person, right? Um, which then leads them to not want to talk about it. And if you're a white person, as I'd said, you know, we've felt that like ping of shame or like this like, ooh, you know, I, I did something bad and I, I've definitely had that too. And that's not a single that you're a wholly bad person on every dimension of everything forever. It's a signal that you grew up in a racist culture and it, that you've got some work to do, right? And the issue here is whether or not you step up to do the work. So if you want to dig more into this, there are a number of good resources, um, but I'll start with a book called White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Um, okay, so that's the first pin. I'm going to quickly address the second pin, um, which is about um, <clears throat> an organization or company never taking the time to do this work because they were always like going, going, going. Um, they didn't have the time or capacity to do the work, right? Um, or so they thought, right? So if you want to dig in a little further, I recommend reading White Supremacy Culture and Organizations by Kenneth Jones and Tema Kun. Uh, they list a number of ways that white supremacy can show up in, in an organization or workplace. And once again, this is not surprising given how our we're socialized and how our culture um, functions. Uh, I'm not going to go over all of them right now, but I and I might say that for another time. But one of the their points is that a culture always having this like sense of urgency is an issue, right? The sense of urgency, and you, you know, most businesses I think have experienced this in some way, right? So. It can show up like, we have to grow right now. We're always growing, reaching that next level, or feeling like everything is an emergency forever, right? Um, you know, we've all felt this before. Um, it takes real intention and time and energy and sometimes monetary commitment to put these, the needs of your staff, like your customers, and even like your community before all of the myriad of seemingly immediate <laughs> fires that need to be put out, right? Um, and I hear this time and time again about uh, from companies about how hard it is to find time for things like professional development. And it's um, as true in the gear community as anywhere, for sure, right? Like uh, now we're in a real emergency. Check that out. But together, you know, it's a time that like, you know, if we're able, it's a time that we can uh, as companies take stock and reconfigure what they want to look like and what values they want to share when they come out of it. Right. And we can do this together. So. All right. I hope that that was helpful to dig into. And if you want to check out those resources, they're in the show notes. Um, if you want to reach out and talk more, definitely shoot me an email. Gear and culture are my two favorite things to talk about. And I'll do it anytime. So thanks again, and I'll check with you next episode.